You're listening to It Simply Isn't Done, a podcast of Portage Chapel Hill. I'm Barry Petrucci. I'm Jess Davenport. And together we are the Irreverent Reverends. It Simply Isn't Done is a podcast both about the state of the church, um, because the church is not done and God is still working with us, and about some of the things we do around here, which we frequently hear are things that are simply not done. Correct. And we're glad you're here with us for the ride. Well, welcome. We are together on this third week of I've Been Meaning to Ask. And this week the question was, What do you need? And the scriptures were from Job and 2 Timothy. If you haven't heard the message and the scripture, go ahead and listen. If you have, check the show notes for where you can skip ahead to some reflection. When Job's three friends heard about all this disaster that had happened to him, that had happened to him, they came, each one from his home, Eliphaz from Taman, Bildad from Shua, and Zophar from Naamah. They agreed to come so they could console and comfort him. When they looked up from a distance and didn't recognize him, they wept loudly. Each one tore his garment and scattered dust above his head towards the sky. They sat with Job on the ground seven days and seven nights, not speaking a word to him, for they saw that he was in excruciating pain. Timothy 4, 9 through 18. Do your best to come to me quickly. Demas has fallen in love with the present world and has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. He has been a big help to me in this ministry. I sent Tychicus and Ephesus. When you come, bring along the coat I left with Carpus and Troas. Also bring the scrolls and especially the parchments. Alexander, the craftsman who works with metal, has really hurt me. The Lord will pay him back for what he has done. But watch out for him because he opposes our teaching. No one took my side at my first court hearing. Everyone deserted me. I hope that God doesn't hold it against them, but the Lord stood by me and gave me strength so that the entire message would be preached through me and so all the nations could hear it. I was also rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil action and will save me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and always. Amen. A word of God that is still speaking. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kaylee. Would you be in prayer with me? Gracious and holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, friends, we are in week three of our I've Been Meaning to Ask series. This whole series serves as a way to give us food for thought um, and ways to make our relationships with each other and our broader community a bit deeper. 
existing with more meaning. We're often told one way that we should do that is by humanizing others. And for Christians, humanizing others means recognizing they too are made in God's divine image. So to humanize someone else is to understand their belovedness and to be curious, right, about who they are as people in God's great diversity. And so we have a whole series based on questions that might spark curiosity of one another and a desire to know ourselves and others better. We started with where are you from? Barry preached last week on where does it hurt? And today's question, I think, is the hardest so far. I've been meaning to ask, what do you need? What a fraught question. As a people, we're not so weird about others having needs, but when it comes to us, ugh, ugh, who wants to have needs? What a burden. It doesn't feel great to have needs. We don't like talking about it. We don't like naming it. Sometimes we don't even like that we have needs. And while I don't think this problem is specific to any particular group or culture, I think there's a bit of our American Midwesternness that really gets in the way of this here. I think when independence is a core value of our nation, we maybe take it a bit to the extreme, right? It started as independence, you know, from England as colonies. We didn't want to be in colonial rule. And now we value independence in and of itself. Independence from anyone else, right? Independence, we can do it on our own. It in itself is a value. Having needs is the worst. No one wants to feel like a burden. Being needy is awful. And we've kind of structured this false narrative that we can do everything on our own and that we can provide for ourselves. So much so, when someone asks you, hey, what do you need? What's your first answer? Nothing. 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 What do you need? Nothing. That's what we all say, right? That's what came to our brains. Ooh, good. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> and so we're kind of conditioned to say nothing. And what's interesting about that is it's not necessarily the truth, but we often get there before we even think or consider what our needs actually are. We say nothing before even thinking about the question. It's almost like a hi, how are you sort of situation. And there's, there's one tool, a frame of reference that I want to introduce into our church culture that I think might help us. And um, it's really about reframing the concept of charity. We're gonna do a little more work with charity in the coming weeks, specifically what it actually is, because I think we misinterpret it frequently. But when we generally understand charity, it's like giving to someone in need. And it kind of forms this, this barrier between people. I, I can give to someone else who has need. I can respond to someone else who has a need. And I would love to get into our brains a, a concept of mutual aid of mutual aid, of understanding there are times wherein you will have a need that someone else can meet. There are times someone else will have a need you can meet. We all have particular needs. We don't need to separate ourselves. Like a thing our church does is charity. 
as if it is somehow different and outside of us, with people who are different and outside of us. The concept of reframing mutual aid helps us to understand not only do we all have needs, but we have a much broader community and network than we have even considered. But we need to go back to my first point. Friends, we often don't even know what we need. It takes legitimate practice to name our needs, to consider and think about what we actually need. Now, those of us who are married, we can probably talk about how we navigated figuring out our needs in relationship, but the first place I really did this was with my college roommates. Whew. There's a lot of cultures and spaces coming together and figuring out how to say like, hey, I know this might not be fair, but Alex, I, I need you to turn your light off at 1 a.m. I need it. You're asleep. Turn your light off. I need it. I can't sleep with your flipping light on, Alex. <laughs> it took me like months to figure out how to just say that, how to just plainly state that. And I was just irritated and resentful. And she was like, yeah, okay, great. I'll put it on a timer. My grandparents got me a clapper. Do y'all remember the clapper? Right? <laughs> so, so sometimes if she forgot, I could clap loud enough in my room and it would turn it off. It was just this interesting example where I was like, oh, I could have not been irritated for two months and just asked her. I could have just asked her to turn her light off. The first time I sat down with Wesley students and I said, hey, let's look at our programming calendar and I want to address uh, holistic needs, right? Let's talk about your spiritual needs. Let's talk about your emotional, your physical needs, like your young adults by yourself for the first time. Let's talk about that. What do you need? And these are like my leaders. Right, what do you need? And we're looking around at each other. It's just blank stares. I'm like, okay, you know, I get it. It's 11 a.m. For some of you, that's early, all right? <laughs> I need you to wake up and be with me here. What do you need, y'all? Like, I, I, can't, I, I can't make it up for you. What do you need? And eventually, one student said, I'm not sure I've ever been asked that. I'm not sure I've ever been asked, what do you need? Right? In a broad sense. Right? We've been asked, how can I help? Can I bring a casserole? But what do you need? How many of us even ask ourselves that question, what do we need? It's hard. It's a vulnerable thing to even consider or think of. I think along with our, our kind of hyperfixation on independence, we tend to think strength is not having needs, right? Strength and needs are somehow opposite. When in reality, I think it's one of the bravest and most courageous things we can do to name a need and say, hey, I don't know if anyone can help with this, but I have a need. My family has a need. And I'm going to put it out there just to see if anyone can help us in this particular area. That is brave. Right? That is a brave thing to do. Part of the work I've been doing the last really five or six years is working on naming uh, my own needs. And what's interesting about that is I actually had to start with learning to feel feelings. That might sound weird to some of you, um, but I would much prefer to think about my feelings. I would much prefer to intellectualize my feeling. Like, what would it be like to be angry in this particular moment? What would that be like? And I can talk about that all day, but I don't like feeling them. Ugh, right? Feelings. Having needs and feelings. Ugh, they're awful. 
So my therapist helped me kind of understand how to feel feelings in my body and respond to them, which is really, really helpful because that started me realizing like, oh, there are tons of times throughout the day I just ignore my basic needs. I just ignore them entirely. I'm thirsty, well, I really gotta do this other thing. And then I end up with a headache and I'm dehydrated and I'm cranky and everyone I work with is like, what's up? <laughs> right? I ignored a particular need. So I'm learning what that looks like. Sometimes I need to walk or a gentle movement. Sometimes I need to verbally process out loud and need to ask for consent for someone to hear that because <laughs> if not, I go for it, right? Sometimes I need a hug. More often, I need a snack. Um, sometimes I need a nap. But what's interesting is that it's entirely counterintuitive to consider what we need because we're kind of programmed to think about what needs to be done. Let me get what needs to be done, completed, accomplished, and then I'll treat myself by having a glass of water, by finally going to the bathroom, right? Like that's a weird way that we, we end up kind of doing things in our society. And it's interesting. It's interesting. And I've been a little silly about this so far, um, but somewhere for many of us, we were taught, and it lives deep down in who we are, that we shouldn't really have needs. We should be able to provide everything we need in our lives for ourselves and our families. And when we're faced with needs outside of our control, whew, what do we do? Oftentimes we don't articulate them. Right? We are born, we come into this world with our first breath, right? grasping and crying. And that's one of the first ways we cry out for our needs. And then what do we do eventually with babies that cry a lot? We shush them. We tell them, no, 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 no. That makes us uncomfortable. We don't like that need that you're naming. I've changed you, I've fed you, I've hugged you. What else could you need? Right? And we have the same thing done to us. There's a deep discomfort we can have with needs being addressed out loud. But friends, uh, part of being the body of Christ has a flip side we don't often talk about. Right? We love to talk about being the body of Christ because we can be the hands and we have gifts that we can give other people. We love that. Right? You can be feet, you can be eyes, you can be all these things and you give it out to the world. The flip side of that is that we all have to work together and we have needs internally. Sometimes when your sense organs stop working, another sense organ comes in and, and compensates for it, right? And you have a totally other sense. We need one another in order to be the body of Christ. I think God designed us to function as a community, more of a unit, than we even understand. And one of our greatest forms of idolatry is thinking we don't need each other. Particularly for those of us that are partnered or with families, we think, oh, I have this other person, they must meet all my needs. <laughs> That's pretty hard, right? That's pretty hard for one other human. We are designed to be in community. There is a really beautiful Hezekiah Walker song called I Need You to Survive. Does anyone know it? I'll talk it. I won't sing it. I thought about it. I need you. You need me. We're all a part of God's body. It is God's will that every need be supplied. You are important to me. I need you to survive. 
I pray for you, you pray for me, I love you. I need you to survive. There is something really beautiful and important about that. We were not created to go it alone. We weren't even created to go with a few other people. We were created to be in a large community. Paul gets that. Paul gets that in his letter. This is one of my favorite parts of scripture. Um, It's a wonderful reminder that I think Paul would be flabbergasted that here we are thousands of years later reading his personal letters. Do your best to come to me quickly. Demas has fallen in love with the present world and deserted me. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. (laughs) I don't know what's up with Luke, but apparently Paul and Luke were having a moment. Get Mark. Bring him with you. He's been a big help to me in my ministry. And then my favorite part, when you come, bring along the coats I left with you. He forgot his coat. How many coats do these folks have? Not a ton. And he forgot it and he needed it. Right? He has these really human needs. First of which are really, I need my people. I need my people. I need my people right now. I've been hurt. I've been harmed. And I need my people. He also needs his coat because it's chilly. He needs his parchment and his scrolls, his works. He can name physical needs. And what I love about this, too, is that he also names needs that he doesn't want other people to fill, but God to fill. He doesn't need revenge. He wants God's justice, but he does not need revenge. He says, you know what, that's in God's hands. He doesn't even want his very loyal disciples to exact revenge on his behalf. He's so confident that God will take care of the justice, but he is able to name it as a need. And I think there are two things that are important for us to consider. Um, Again, despite me being a little tongue-in-cheek, we don't need to judge Paul's needs. We don't need to judge them. A big part of the question, what do you need, is assuming that folks have agency to name their need and to not be paternalistic about it. Right? Is that really a need? Does Paul really need his coat? I mean, come on, he's gone this far without it. Does he need it? No, that's not what we're called to do. The second thing is, we don't have to meet every need, even if it's asked of us, even if we asked, what do you need? Even if we've given a space for someone to think about what they need and to name it, that doesn't mean we necessarily individually have to meet that need. Not long ago, we had a man stop in the office to see if we had any handyman work to do, and he was really looking for a specific amount of cash, and we don't really give out cash. We will have gas cards and Meyer cards because you all are generous and you donate so that we can have those on hand when someone has an immediate need. Um, He wasn't really interested in that. We did know that Prince of Peace up the street had some specific direct aid to give out. And so we said, hey, within our network, here's where we know, here's where you can go, here's what that might look like. And he was kind of upset, right? He was upset that we weren't able to meet that need. And I get that. It's hard to name a need and to be vulnerable and then to be told, I'm so sorry, we can't do that. And he got pretty agitated because he also wanted a ride there. And it was me, Lisa, and Tanya in the office, and I said, no, I'm sorry. We really don't give folks rides we don't know for safety reasons. He became more agitated and said something about how even at church there are no more good Samaritans. And that stung a little bit. And I said, you know what? I hear that. 
And I'm really sorry we live in a world where it's not safe to transport strangers where they need to go. I'm sorry. And I meant that. And he heard that. And I think he believed I really was sorry. And he calmed down a little bit. And, uh, he, you know, he made some sort of joke. And then he just, uh, as a joke, kind of took a handful of the orange mints we always keep in the office. And he put them in his pocket. And he was like, all right, I'll see you next time. But it was, it was stingy, right? Because people come and they call the church for help. Um, and we help as often as we can. And we're able to frequently again, because y'all are very generous. But we can't help with every need. We can't. We're not equipped to meet every need. What we can do is work with local agencies to help fund those in-between places that they can't figure out how to get funded. And we also can refer people to those places, like Prince of Peace. Like there's value in having your clergy get together once a month to have lunch and say like, hey, what's going on? What does this look like? Because we know what's happening in the community. It's helpful when we have other agencies and we know what they're doing, and we can give directly to them because they know how to do the work, right? I'm not trained to be a social worker. I'm not. I have to wear that hat every once in a while. But I would rather people who are trained as social workers be able to wear that hat. That's the other hard part of being a place that has folks that have needs, is sometimes you have to say, I'm sorry. I'm not equipped to do that. But let me think about my network. Let me think about my community and what that might mean and a way we could potentially get this need met. Sometimes we rely on individuality to meet needs too. And this is about casting our net wide. Our second story today is found in Job. For seven days, his friends show this really beautiful example of just how to be with someone who's clearly in need but can't even articulate their needs. Job had experienced catastrophic trauma. He lost his livelihood. He lost his children. He lost his wife. You know, like, what are you going to say? What do you need? And he's going to say, my kids. And his friends can't meet that need. When they see him for the first time, he looks so physically different. They can tell just how this has altered him as a human. They don't even recognize him. And so to demonstrate, they understand. They understand the real grief and trauma. They tear their clothes and they put ash on their face. And then they just sit with him. They just sit with him in that space, in that presence. I imagine they bring him water, maybe a little something to eat. Now, if you've read the rest of the poem, they do kind of screw up later, right? <laughs> They really do blame a lot on him, right? It doesn't, it doesn't go well. It's a beautiful poem, right? But they're not always this perfect example figure. But in this, in this section we have today, it's an excellent model how to show up and to bear witness to Job's pain. That is often a very real need, having people bear witness to your pain. It's kind of the second half of where does it hurt from last week. And generally, we do the first part well. We show appropriate signs of understanding, trauma of someone that we're connected to. We respond and say, I'm praying for you. We will fill fridges full of food. We will clean houses. We do that well. But that's often where we stop. Friends, we don't like to bear witness to others' pain. 
We don't like to see others in pain because seeing them in pain hurts us. It makes us uncomfortable. We're not always sure what to do. But that presence, that act of solidarity is often the most important. We're not called to feel their pain ourselves. We are called to bear witness to it. Remington Johnson, who writes on this passage, writes that that act, that act that Job's friends do, that act that we can do, it is incarnational. It is sacred to bear witness to someone's pain and joy and life. And in a way, we practice that here every Sunday. We practice it together so that we build our capacity to do it everywhere. We take space for prayer. We're together. We lift up needs. We bear witness to pain and to joy. And one of the things we hold so dearly, too, as Christians, is that Jesus knows what it's like to be human. God knows the human experience intimately, not only as the creator, but having experienced it. And we lift up that Jesus has, has borne witness to the pain that we feel such that God's presence means something. God's presence matters in our lives because God knows and understands and can bear witness to us. So friends, this week, as we move forward, I have two things for you to think about. One is um, a few weeks ago, Tanya and I, we gathered a group of folks to talk about what congregational care could look like, and we kind of broke out different ways it exists. So we have, we have meals, awesome. We have prayer together. We have a ways that we can have a prayerless serve. Um, we have one, one-on-one spiritual care. But we also have this kind of other need that falls more in line with the mutual aid. And I would love for you uh, to dream with me what that could look like and to see if you feel nudged into participating in that. So often we'll have someone called the church, one of you, who will say, hey, um, I, I need someone who can still get up on a ladder who can change a light bulb. Do you know someone for me? Right? And, and we're often like, well, I, I don't exactly. <laughs> I wish there was a way we could figure that out, right? Or someone um, will call and say, hey, I have, I have X, Y, Z, or I'm getting rid of some tools. Do you know if anyone could use them? That sort of thing. And we haven't figured out a good system of this kind of mutual aid within the congregation, but I want to, because I think that's a way we can have a really um, beautiful fabric of community and and figure out how to mutually meet needs. If you are interested in that at all, if that sounds at all exciting to you or you feel God nudging you to help me figure this out, let me know on your connect card or talk to me. Because in addition to your ideas, I also need some help administering this and figuring out what a good mechanism is to get the information out, all that kind of stuff. I'm in the dreaming stages. And if you want to dream with me, first of all, buckle up. Second of all, (laughs) you could write that on your Connect card. All right, so the the other thing I want you to think about, these are, it's two, so I really have three. Just, it's okay. Um, I have three. And these are individual. They're individual reflections I invite you to this week. One, I want you to consider what you need. What you need in this time, in this season, and to acknowledge to be human is to have needs. Right? Some you can meet on your own. 
some others can help meet, and some that are out of human hands. But the first step to figuring out how to weave our community together is being able to even articulate your own needs and build that weaving of community, right? Because God's dream for humanity is for us all to have what we need, and God created a world where there is all that we need here. It's figuring out how to organize ourselves to be the hands and feet of Christ. So the second thing I want you to individually think about is someone you've been meaning to reach out to. Someone in your life you've been thinking about, they've been in your prayers, they just come to your mind, right? And kind of like, I wonder how they are sort of way. I invite you to reach out to them and to start a conversation, to start building that web of community. Your first words might not be, what do you need? That might not even come up in the conversation but get in the practice of actually reaching out to the people that come into your brain that you pray for and letting them know that you're there and you're part of their team. Friends, I think that's, that's plenty of homework for, for this week. So, right. Welcome back. Trust that uh, you enjoyed the scripture readings and the message from Pastor Jess. Jess, what were you doing? <laughs> well, where, where were you going with it? What, what did you want us to take away? Good, good question. What was I doing? The question, what do you need, I find uh, to be really intimidating. Um, so I first just wanted to kind of name some of that intimidation and then talk a little bit about, here are some examples we have in scripture of what it looks like to name needs. And I wanted people to leave with the understanding that asking people what they need isn't as scary maybe as they thought, and telling people what you need isn't as scary as you might have thought. And part of that naming and asking for needs is is how we actually are the body of Christ together. As in most things, uh, in being the body of Christ, as in claiming the name Christian, it is countercultural. Um, and speaking our need or asking somebody else about their need, that is countercultural. Mm-hmm. Right? We tend to think about need as having some kind of a, a defect mm-hmm. of character or defective behavior, moral character. Uh, we use words like needy. Mm-hmm. Uh, when connected to people that we think have more needs than they are really, really uh, are, are, are able. What's that word I'm thinking of? Allowed. Allowed. Ding, ding, ding. Yes, more needs allowed. than they're allowed more, to have. More, more needs than they're allowed. Like there's a quota of needs. And yeah. we have this idea that, you know, you've asked too many times. And, you know, and, and we do some of that. I mean, we get that sense. You mentioned... Uh, a story about a, a gentleman who came to church looking for mm-hmm. some help in the office, and uh, we we have you know we have people that we understand to be kind of frequent flyers in in their coming to have needs fulfilled, and, and it gets a little bit exhausting sometimes. Yeah. So yeah. So when we talk about asking people, um, you know, what do you need, or even considering our, for ourselves, what do we need? It brings a lot of baggage with it. It does. Lots of baggage. We struggle with the baggage in a way that I think prevents us from asking or answering the question. Um, 
you know, with uh, with with the gentleman that came um, to ask who who is a frequent flyer and who didn't want any other particular types of aid. Uh, you know, one reason when I was kind of processing with folks after, um, one reason folks didn't know what to do was because they just felt so bad. They felt bad that we could not meet this need. Um, so much so that it kind of prevented, you know, maybe a conversation about it or why. And I, th- I think about that often, how sometimes we don't ask because we don't, we're afraid of the responsibility, right? As if when someone names a need, as if you're automatically responsible for it. Or when you, I, there's a clear onus of like, if you ask someone, what do you need? People assume there's the implication that if you ask, you will answer it. And I'm not sure that's, you know, that that needs to be true. Well, it's Santa Claus mentality. <laughs> I mean, when Santa Claus sure. says, what would, you, what would you like, little girl or little boy? The expectation is I'm being asked because God, or God <laughs> Santa Claus is going to fulfill this. God, <laughs> Santa Claus. Nice Freudian slip there, Petrucci. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. When in reality, if we just, I think, helped folks even name needs without the expectation that we might be able to, to fill them, <laughs> like that would be, that would even be helpful in people understanding what they need, especially because there's this, this opposite and interesting dynamic wherein I'll need to, like, I'll, I'll use myself as an example, I'll need to like express something or communicate about something and whoever is hearing who, who I trusted um, to hear that communication can go into solution mode really quickly mm-hmm. as if what I'm articulating, I, I'm not able to think through, you know, I just like, I need someone else to solve the problem for me as opposed to just space to, to bounce ideas off of. And it's interesting because like, I think that's the flip side of the, like, I'm, we're, we're uncomfortable with with the space in between a, a quote-unquote problem and a solution, a space between a need and it being fulfilled. We don't like that. We don't like that gap oh. of space there. Um, and I think that gap of space is, is where I've done a lot of learning and growing and stretching personally. And even knowing that, I, I don't like it. I just, we just don't like it. Mine was my mind was going a, a number of different directions. I think <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> I think what's interesting is, um, you know, the Coldplay song "Fix You." Mm-hmm. It, there's this, there's a huge motivation in our culture to jump in and fix where you can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we so we tend not to say or do anything until we have some clarity that we're going to. Uh, we're, we are going to be able to. We are going to be able to do something, and in fact, we will do something. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, it really has very little to do with the other person at all. Yes. Yep. It has to do with our own energy around wanting to be a fixer. Mm-hmm. And I think we lose a lot in that space because it's not about what someone needs; it's about our own need to quiet them, <laughs> their needs. You know? No. You know, or or to be part of the solution or a helping hand like but that's still on on our you know on our end which is interesting about all of this it was interesting with our scripture stories um, just how uncomfortable we can be 
regarding what others might need that we can't meet? There were interesting scriptures, because on the one hand, you had Second Timothy, Paul's letter, which was kind of a checklist of the things that, that he identified as need, right? Mm-hmm. All of which were things that the reader would be able to help manage. Say more. They, they were in the reach of the reader to, oh, yes. to, yes. to fix. Yeah. Uh, I, sure, I can bring you your coat. <laughs> yeah. Done. Check. Um, Parchment and scrolls. Job was not like that. Mm. Uh, Job is is uh, a character that is intentionally drawn as tragic, mm-hmm. and it is the uh, in, in the story it is the the result of the ultimate powers of evil and good doing battle over this guy's life, and um, and he's a mess, and his friends do what they can do, which is sit and bear witness Mm -hmm. Um, and they do it admirably for seven days and then things get old and they're tired of not being able to fix that so they want to come up with all the reasons to give Job about why he is how he is and what he should do to fix it Mm -hmm. which was essentially to say yeah yeah I'm going to confess I did something whether I did or not yeah Yes, um, that is how the story ends up. <laughs> oh I, no, 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 no! The story ends up with everything being given back to Job. You know, in, well, yes, in, in I, aces. We just have a, so we just have this small little scripture in yeah. front of us for this Sunday. Yeah. Um, welcome to the Book of Job retelling. <laughs> well, I mean, the story is is a little story that's stuffed full of this amazing poetry that mm-hmm. that is really about how humans deal with tragedy. Yeah, in in the most extreme circumstances, using a lot of hyperbole, um, and this one, the the, the pericope—it's uh, a little section of scripture <laughs> that we had in front of us. Had his friends, I think, doing a, a really beautiful job at yeah that that bearing witness, and that's that's what we find so uncomfortable. We don't like that oh. as humans. We don't like the bearing witness. Now, being in a space where we can't immediately solve someone's grief or someone's problem, but just being able to show up and be with them. And we also don't like naming that as a particular need. So we say nothing, you know. Or, or we transform the pain into celebration, which is what we've done largely uh, um, in, in the culture and in the church, for instance, around around death and dying. Sure. Um, we celebrate the life and like that language and we like that that those funny storytellings and and um and and who doesn't but there's also that piece of our very real pain that we're not grappling with and then folks are left alone with that yeah that is that is how we prefer things (laughs) yeah yeah sitting shiva doesn't happen anymore oh yes certainly not Certainly not for many of us. For many, well, even and even in cultures where that was part of it, it's not uncommon to pay people to to, to sit shiva, yeah, because people have more money than they have time. Mm-hmm. How did you learn to start articulating needs? Uh, that presumes I have. <laughs> <laughs> That 
Yeah, touche. Right. Yeah. It's hard, right? It's it's hard, and it's it's hardest with the people that you're closest to. Yeah. Right, because we we. I, um, I want to be strong with the people that I'm close close to, and often I think that being strong precludes me from being uh, vulnerable and say what my needs are. Mm. Uh, we, and, and I also would say that we don't do a particularly good job culturally, and thus I don't do a particularly good job of of separating from myself what the nature of a want is and what the nature of a need is. Yeah. That was a that was a weed I did not venture into, yeah. but uh, really interesting to think about because it's highly subjective. Yeah. Yeah. I got into an argument with my seventh grade health teacher about that because I, I said the community and like friendship is a need in human life. And he was like, no, nope, food, water. Shelter, food, water, shelter, etc. That's it. Yeah, um, and he, he would not relent. Dan Arndt. Arndt? <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure if you're listening, Dan. <laughs> great great coach, great teacher. Great Aren't guy. you sorry now? <laughs> um, but yeah, I just remember thinking like, oh, that's so, that's so interesting. And I was being a punk of a seventh grader, which like, if you know a seventh grader, that's not shocking. Um, but it, it, like since then, I've been fascinated thinking about what, uh, what human needs actually are. What is a need compared to a want? And what how would do we you define say? that? So what would you say about it? I mean, I think there's a very basic level with what do you need to survive? And then I think there's a what do you, what do you need to thrive? And I think that category often gets put into the want I think the need to thrive, we often consider a want because our baseline is survival, as if that is the best we can hope for. And frankly, for some, that is the best like we can hope for globally because we have done such a, you know, a tragic, sinful job at distributing resources. Yeah. So that's that's what I'd really say. I mean, yeah, and, bl- and blaming those that don't have those resources. Yeah, as if it is there. Yeah. yeah their fault that they don't have them. So that's, I don't know, it's kind of a, a working definition and it depends on the individual and the person. Yeah, it's t- it, that, that could be a, a special edition of this for a conversation about what is a want and what is a need. Well, maybe we don't need to subject the listeners and we can just do it later. <laughs> I think the song, I Need You Like the Flower Needs the Rain, mm. I think that kind of defines it all for us. I need you. Yep. Well, we have Hezekiah Walkers. I need you to survive. Excellent. I was sorry you didn't sing it. <laughs> That's kind of you. I do like singing that song. It is a lovely song, and maybe sometime we should do it here. Okay. Well. It's a date. <laughs> All right, Chapel Hill, put it on your calendar. <laughs> <laughs> is there any place that uh, you wish you would have gone that you didn't? Yeah, I didn't love, I didn't love my structure or my organization. Um, I had a hard time. I had a hard time because I had to edit a lot out, and I've learned when I edit a lot out, then like what am I left with? And so, I in terms of actually, you know, the the art of homiletics, I wasn't super impressed with this particular message. Um, from me, <laughs> I. Yeah, I, I think 
if I were to do it differently, I would spend a little more time thinking through the threads and how that could work and flow together a little bit more. I do, um, I've been really wanting to talk and even just gently talk about the concept of mutual aid. So I'm really happy to start doing that. I think um, fostering that sense of community will, will only help us here and help the way we think about aid. And part of me, you know, kind of wants to zoom out at a more, you know, global level and consider what I'm hearing from like economists and sociologists and folks that study history and kind of say, hey, we're, we're not really sure what uh, what's coming next entirely, but there might be a reality where we where we have um, we have more folks that have need. And, and what might that look like? And so how do we start to do some of that work, you know, now? As opposed to decades from now, so we have those community structures and patterns, so it's part of our DNA. Yeah, I think it's particularly true since predictions I'm reading, if they at all are at all accurate, that we're going to be seeing a shifting in resources and mm-hmm. where we now may understand ourselves to be a group with resources that may not be the case forever, and how do we um, how do we live in community where we uh, share resources and, and are in mutual aid? Um, what what we're seeing in the world right now is a, is is kind of the opposite of doing mutual aid. We're mm-hmm. we're seeing walls being built in order to make sure we don't have to deal with those that are in any way unlike us or with fewer resources and seeing them as those that want to take our resources. Um, that's, that's going to be problematic. Yeah. It is problematic. Yeah, it is and will continue to be. Um, you know, greed greed is a hungry beast when you feed it. Ooh. And so that's... thinking... <laughs> Do you like that one? I did. I like that one. <laughs> I think you should have gone down down that rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what could the Beast of Greed look like? That'd be fun. That'd be a horrifying children's tale. Let's, let's do another podcast, Horrifying Tales for Children. We could do it right before Christmas. <laughs> well, at any rate, I'd, I'd love to start that, that countering of that scarcity mindset even more so. Um, with folks here in this space, because we we have an we have an understanding and a value set together already. That's really what brings us together, is our Christian identity that comes with it with some values we've taken some time to define. So, I think this is a good space to kind of lean into what does it look like to not live such isolated lives, and how do how do we weave together not just. Um, you know, I think mutual aid is a good place to start with like, what do you, what things do you need? Like, what can we share? And I, I've, uh, what I've been reading is that it changes a lot of mindsets, not just about the things we share, but the way we share our lives. And I'm, I'm really interested in that because I, I know a lot of folks my age um, and a lot of folks who aren't my age who are like, I don't know that I have capacity to build all these meaningful friendships because life is so frenetic and there's just not time and then so finding ways to kind of counter that even in small ways, I think, opens up channels for that sort of uh, meaning building, life building together. Yeah. I, I appreciated, however you might have felt about the structure of your message, I appreciated 
that you built it primarily around two story segments, which always work for me. Um, uh, the one about the gentleman who came looking for, for assistance, but also about the Wesley students mm-hmm. and the silence and the, the comeback of, I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. Yeah. Um, incredibly poignant and identifiable. Yeah. It's helpful because they were true. So that <laughs> And it, they, they didn't have to be. Yeah, they didn't have to be. But for me, that's that's helpful. I mean, they didn't um, have to be factual. They're true whether they were factual or not. Yes, I should. Sorry, I should say that. That actually happened. So it was easy to identify them. Because I remember particularly with the Wesley one, I was kind of shocked. I was shocked. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even get into this. But like, we had to go back and think through it. Like, oh, you, you all need to learn how to identify needs. And that took us in a very different place and direction. And it actually was really cool where we ended up going. Um, so I had, you know, I was there, what, 16, 17 months before the pandemic started. So that was a bummer. That was a really, that was hard. So I had like one calendar year, one, you know, nine months of an academic year, and we were starting into the fall semester of another one. And we were building this really fun adulting 101 class out of that conversation. And it was it was things like, um, how to do your taxes. And we had someone who's a CPA on our board who was like going to help students do taxes and change tires and things like that. And then um, how to ask for help, how to apologize, how to really thank someone. We had gone through and made kind of this beautiful list. And of course, in the pandemic, a lot of those things became, um, you know, they got lost. But I'm hopeful there are seeds that have been planted that can, you know, be picked up in other spaces and other times. But yeah, that was, I, I, I think about... I think about that a lot. Just no one's ever asked us that before. And there was nods of agreement. Like, wow. Anything else that was dangling that you wanted to touch on? (laughs) No, no dangling participles. (laughs) (laughs) Folks folks probably don't remember the dangling Chad, but man, was that, were those good days. (laughs) Remember that was a Halloween costume. Good old gore. Mm, Nope. No, I think we hit it all, Barry, and more. And more. All right, well, uh, this coming week we'll be wrapping up the, uh, the series. And um, with, uh, so it's All Saints Sunday, it's communion, it's going to be a lot of worship, but there will be a message in there that's, um, that's all about wrap-up, and it's called... Um, where well, do we go where from here? Where do we here? go from here? Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm hoping to have an, some kind of an answer to that by Sunday. We'll see. God bless you. God bless you.